Today we're going to kind of continue with um, what I was teaching on last week. So if you weren't here last week, uh, I'm hoping a lot of this will make sense. But you may miss some of the nuances of what was going on. So before you, you judge me, you may want to uh, listen to last week's sermon first. So you can kind of get the, the balance of, of things. It's on the website. Yes. Um, and so let, let me just talk a little bit about last week. Because, you know, we have a tendency to forget or maybe you weren't here. Last week was a teaching on the will to surrender. Um, and really what I was asking for and I felt the Lord was asking is, a, is, is really a call from us. A call to surrender our life, not just to simply surrender, but actually to have a desire and a will to surrender. Right? There's a big difference between just coming to a place of rock bottom, bottom and having nothing else to do but surrender to the Lord, opposed to making a conscious choice to say, I surrender to you. And so that was the call. And, and so we said, well, here's the thing. There's a problem, a problem of humanity. And the problem of humanity is what a German philosopher called the Willsermacht or the will to power. Uh, and what it is, is that human beings have a tendency to really want to control their experiences. We, we like to have power over things and power over people. And they may actually leak into your kingdom or into the process of the kingdom in your life. How much control and how much power do you have over a situation? Um, and that's not good because we, we try to construct our realities. We try to construct them out of our own fear out of her own desire to have power. But Jesus says, lay down your life. Lay it all down to him. Not just your strengths, but also your weaknesses. I guess I should rather say for added effect, not just your weaknesses, but your strengths, right? Like, Jesus cares about the weaknesses that you lay down at the foot of the cross. But he really, really cares about the strengths that you leave down in him. Right? How much, can, can, how much of your ownership of what you can do well do you give to him? Right? That's the story of, of, of Moses going into the wilderness, a prince of Egypt, having to learn to lay everything down through that experience. <clears throat> and so I was meditating and praying on like where to go uh, with all of this. And the Lord was just saying is that, okay, you know, we, we, we have all of that teaching from last week, but maybe there's a little bit more to this, this will to surrender. Uh, and I believe that the little bit more is an unfortunate reality. Uh, and that is, I think many people, not in the world, because they're in the world, but many people in the church have actually lost touch with reality. We've lost touch with reality. And if we lose touch with reality, spiritual reality, um, we're not going to be surrendering our will to the Lord. And so what is some of that reality? And some of the reality that we've taught you know, the last year, at least, if not more, are things like there's a reality that you are a son or daughter in the Lord. And because you are a son or daughter, and that's the reality, and maybe some of us have to understand that reality, but because we are sons and daughters, we have access to the inheritance of God. We don't have to strive. We don't have to earn. We don't have to be orphans. Like we are loved, and he is there like the prodigal son, just ready to just bestow upon us his blessings and his anointing. There's another reality, that we are crucified in Christ. That's our will, that's our desire, that's our sin nature. And if we can adopt that reality, like, all right, I'm struggling with sins, but you know, if, if I adopt the reality that my life has been purchased and I'm a bondservant and, and sin has been put to death, I'm a new creation, if you can focus on that reality, man, sin is just going to like whew, drip right off of you. 
So, you know, is your reality focusing on the sin? Or is your reality focusing on your identity in him? Right? That's a teaching that we went over. Uh, it's, it's a reality that you are to think different, that in fact you are different, that earth isn't even your home, and that we are a representative of Jesus. These are realities that we have to get forged inside of our being. And so I'm just contemplating this, going before the Lord, and I'm just like, okay, we have all of that, but in the church at large, is there also more to the whole reality of our spiritual lives? that we may have forgotten. And I just want to preface, I'm not, I don't want this to be a judgmental sermon. I don't want this to have that kind of vibe. We need the full picture of things. But to understand the whole reality, we need to turn to Luke 17. It was so funny, you know, I was just talking to Zeke just the other day about this. And we just both agreed that, you know, this is kind of, this kind of teaching hasn't really been taught in the church in many places for a while. And in other places, it's maybe taught too much. That's, that's part of the, the punchline to the sermon. So we open up to uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 20. <clears throat> verse 20. The coming of the kingdom. So now when he, Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes, for as the lightning that flashes, out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of God will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that, the, that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. <clears throat> two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So the reality of things, let's, let's just break this down a little bit before we get into like preaching mode. So we break down the scripture verses which we just read and we're like, okay, we just read like 17 verses, what's being said, a couple different things. Right off the bat, he says that there is a kingdom. When people ask you where the kingdom is and when you are looking for the kingdom, don't be looking for the kingdom around every rock and corner for the kingdom is right here before you. It's Jesus. Luke actually goes on to say that the kingdom of God resides inside of every man. 
The kingdom of God, the host of heaven, is residing inside of our spirit once we get saved. And so we have access to kingdom things and kingdom principles because it is here with us. So when people say you have to go look for the kingdom, don't listen to them. The kingdom is right here before you in Jesus, who we now have, right? The spirit residing inside of us. So that's one very, very big reality. Always asking, seeking the things of the kingdom, it's already here. It's already for us if we just gain access to it, right? Another thing he says, he says, well, one day, one day you will wish that I was here, but I won't be. It's kind of like the present age, like, it would be great to have Jesus here, but he's not here. He's sitting on the right-hand throne of the Father, but we wish he would be here. Then he goes forth and gives a warning. People will say that I am coming on this date, or I've already come, and I'm just hiding somewhere. Don't believe them, because this is how you're going to know. There's going to be a lightning, right? There's going to be a blast of the trumpet or the shofar. Some of the Gospels, and it says that the earth is going to quake. Like, you're going to know when Jesus shows up. The great trumpet blast, right? So don't, like, get into this whole thing and listen to these people. They say Jesus has come, and he came in this way, and this, that, and there. Don't listen to this. The next time I come, you're going to, oh, you're going to know. It's really funny. On the Internet, you can go to, like, Messiah Cam. Have you guys ever been to that? You Google it. There's, like, a camera that's on the Mount of Olives that's like there 24-7 to like record when Jesus comes back. You're like, we're going to know. Like the heavens are going to open up. I don't think we're going to need to have a webcam. But there's a webcam. It's really quite funny. This one's uh, pretty interesting. Number five, the fifth thing he says, it's going to be like the days of Noah. Uh, people are going to be going about their business. It's going to be like the days of Lot when people are just going through their thing. They're going to be working their nine-to-five job. They're going to be doing their thing and pa-pow. Like lightning from heaven. He then says, remember. This fits in so well to last week. Remember this, as he's giving this, 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 this teaching. He that saves his life will lose it. He that loses his life will save it. Right in the midst of this, of the foretelling of his coming, he is referencing once again the desire for you to surrender your life to him. And of course, there is the great taking up which many people refer to the rapture, which is like a whole other like two-part sermon series. So we're not going to talk about that yet. But this is what's going on here. And what I wanted to emphasize here is to understand the reality of things. And the reality of things is this, people. He is coming back. Like, I forget that sometimes. I'm just going to be real with you. Like I'm going to work and my kids and there's poopy diapers and there's an explosion of poop and you got to go to the bathtub and you let a hand and you're like, oh my gosh, you just want to sleep. And then the kids are screaming and blah, blah, blah. And then the car doesn't work when you drive in. Got to do an all church meeting after about the roof. It's like, oh my gosh. And you're like, but Jesus is coming back. And I just thought the Lord was just saying his connection to last week's sermon is that I believe that if, if we understand the reality of his expected return, that it should be a reality to surrender to him now. To lay down your life now. To lay it down now. Because he's coming back. He's coming back in the clouds, man. And he's setting up his kingdom. And there no longer will be cell phones that interrupt services, you know? 
Like he's coming back. And I just, I just felt like, I don't want this to be like a, a heavy sermon, but it's just like, I was just hit with the sobriety of things. Like he just woken me up out of my drunkenness, if you will. It's like, he is coming back. Like, dude, like it, it's a whole huge endeavor that is about to happen. And we, we have a tendency to forget that. When was the last time you heard a sermon on, like, at, on the end times and like the book of Revelation and him coming back and pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, what is it, all, all this kind of stuff. I mean, we, that was like really big when I was like growing up, like in the 80s. And I think it was even bigger in the 70s, right? But now it's like love, which is awesome. I'm not downplaying love, but it's like he's coming back. He's coming back. Woo! I'm getting chills just saying that statement. Now, it's not necessarily our fault. Um, I want to do it to, for this to gain a little bit more, for us to gain a little bit more understanding in this, I'm going to do like a 2,000 year comparison. And what I mean by this is this um, in Hebraic thought, in biblical thought, and I don't want to lose you in this, um, there, there are two, in, in, in biblical tradition and in Judaism, there are two types of Mashiachs or two types of Messiahs. Mashiach is, is Messiah. Um, we would believe that there are two characteristics, not two different people, uh, but two characteristics. And in Hebraic thought, during the times of Jesus, everyone knew about this, and that's what kind of made things go a little weird. There are two types. The one on the left is the Ben Yosef. Uh, in Hebrew, your last name is son of. So Ben is son. Yosef, Joseph. Interesting. Uh, there's going to be a Messiah son of Joseph. And in biblical tradition, the son of Joseph is this warrior king, this righteous king, who's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives, as it says in the book of Isaiah and Zechariah, and there's going to be living water that flows down into the Kidron Valley to water the desert again. And there's going to be a great earthquake. And the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel will be defeated. And Messiah, Ben Yosef, is, is going to... I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I apologize. Zeke is looking at me. I apologize, I'm still thinking about the car. <laughs> Jesus. It's not that big of a deal. The, the, what I just explained to you is Messiah ben David, I'm sorry. So, ben of, son of David is everything I just explained to you. This righteous king, like King David, who's going to reign and kick out the enemies of God, kick out the enemies of Israel. And then we have Ben Yosef who is the, the son of Joseph, as I said, but he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The humble servant who opened up not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, right? He took on the chastisement of our sins, right? A bruised reed he would not break. And so in Jewish thought, in biblical thought, in the tradition, which Jesus surely knew and the disciples knew and everyone knew, which we sometimes forget, is that there's two types of messiahs. Now in Christianity, we'd say it's not too different they are two characteristics of the same being. But in Jewish thought, no, they're separate. They're different. That's part of the reason why they would not accept him. Okay? So, put it this way. His first coming was Ben, uh, was ben Yosef, the suffering servant. Love, grace, picks on the wrath of God. Would not strike, would not hurt. But he's coming again. And he's coming as Ben David, the righteous king 
who will destroy the enemies of God. In the book of Daniel in Revelation, it says that in, the, in Megiddo, in the, in the valley of Megiddo, which is 60 miles wide, that the, the blood will be up to what? The hip or the, the neck? The neck? There's going to be that much death. I mean, this is, this is like, this is sobering stuff. But those are the two different types. And to draw the comparison, it's this. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people of the day, uh, many people during the first century had such a focus on the earthly reign of Messiah that they missed his first coming as a suffering servant. Like there was such a belief that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to kick out the Romans, give liberty and freedom to the Jewish people, set up his kingdom. That's what they were hoping for and that's what they were believing in. So when the suffering servant Messiah characteristic came, they're like, no, it can't be that. It's got to be this guy. It's this guy. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's this righteous king. And that's why they're like, you can't be the Messiah because we're waiting for the righteous king to come. And what does Jesus say? The kingdom of, uh, my, my kingdom is not of this world, right? It's of heaven. I'm not here to set politically people free. I'm here to set spiritually people free. But I'm coming again and it's going to be like lightning. Like that. And people are like, no, no, I focus on that type of Messiah. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I was wondering about this. Today, 2,000 years later, are people in the church and also outside of the church, are people focusing so much on the suffering servant that they forget that he's coming again to set up his kingdom? There's a reality. He is coming with fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand. Now, fire in his eyes and sword in his hand, not towards me. Because my soul has been redeemed. But the scriptures say it is the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's great for all those who declare Jesus already. And it's terrible if you're an enemy of the Lord. I mean, it's so terrible that when people say, I'm praying for Jesus to come, I pray, Lord, please don't come. Let there be just one more person entering into the kingdom before you're come. Because it's a big, big deal. Like he's going to come, right, to defeat his enemies who so happen to be my enemies. Not as a lamb, but as a lion, as a man of war, defeating his spiritual and physical enemies of God. I haven't heard a message like that in a while. Anyone else? Years. Years? Because it can have so much condemnation in it, but there isn't condemnation when it's soaked in love. Because by grace we are redeemed. But I wonder if we understand the full reality, the full balance of things, if you better appreciate grace. Grace means nothing if he's solely a loving God. But if he's a God of wrath and judgment, grace is worth so much more. That's like the old, old Jonathan Edwards kind of teachings, right? It's Soren Kierkegaard, fear and trembling. 
It's, 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 it's Jonathan Edwards, right, and the hands, right, the hands of an angry God or something it may be. And like, yeah, I'm not saying we need to start preaching like that because that's just fire and brimstone. But, but there needs to be a sober reality of things, a full picture. Grace means so much more knowing what life would be like without grace, without his blood. It makes things so much more clear. You know what I'm saying? Praise the Lord. By grace, we are redeemed and we're saved from eternal judgment. But there is a seat. Does anyone know where I'm going? Dude, I am redeemed. I am in. I know I'm in without a shadow of a doubt. Praise the Lord. But there's a seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all, not just the lost, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I'm saved from eternal judgment, but there's still a judgment. Revelation 22, I am coming, right? I'm coming to judge those by their works. And I have eternal rewards for them. Paraphrasing. But there is a judgment seat. The judgment seat of Christ. We're going to go before him. He's going to say, yo, you're redeemed. You love. I love you. Well done. But we've got to talk about some things. This is, a, like I said, this is not <laughs> to strike fear in you, but a sober, reality, a sober reminder to us 21st century Christians of the reality that he is king and the king desires your will to surrender your life to him, all of it. And I think when you get the full reality, the full picture, it becomes a little bit more like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Which was used to be a very, very, very common teaching in the church, which we've moved away from. And long term, maybe we had to move away from it into some regard, quote unquote, because people were fire and brimstone, judgment all the time. It's like, that's not Jesus. It's half of Jesus. <laughs> it's half of Jesus. Like, you have love and you also have judgment. You need both. So, where we're trying to go with today, with this whole restoring our maybe lost touch reality, is, is balance. We in the Western church, we're really, really bad at balancing things. We go so full-blown in one direction, or so full-blown in the next direction... Right? It's crazy. Like, you have, like, the real hardcore Baptist church that, like, teaches Bible, 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 Bible. And then you have the evangelical, carefree, charismatic church that, like, you know, gives a 10-minute sermon, and, but then worship is off the hook. Awesome. Where's the balance? And we want to be a church, and we want to be a people of balance. Okay? So what's the balance? The balance is Jesus teaches, and the Scriptures teaches both. A righteous judge, and also a suffering servant. 
The righteous judge, which is in the, in the second coming, uh, is, yes, is judgment. Is a wrath of God on the enemies of God. And the suffering servant is grace, love, and redemption. So you have a better picture, because, look, I, the reason why we're just focusing on a couple of scriptures that are a little bit more righteous judge is because many people in the church have forgotten it. So if you take a look at Psalms 2. My version of the Bible says, as a title, the Messiah's triumphant kingdom. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? This is, this is speaking of the coming of Jesus, the coming of his reign. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So all the kings of the earth are setting themselves up against Jesus. They say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. It's like God is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm laughing at your vain, silly attempt to try to come up against me. I'm laughing at you. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I would declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is Jesus and us following him in the great battle in the end. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. So, let's get a little deep into the weeds here. Kings, serve him with fear and trembling. Okay. Let's talk about Hebraic uses of fear. There's two words that are used for fear in the Older Testament. Pachad and Yireh. Okay? Pachad is terror. Pachad is used when referencing the enemies of God. If you're an enemy of God, you better be in terror about what he's going to do. But when in reference to his beloved, it's the Hebrew word Yireh. Which in English, unfortunately, is translated as fear. Yure is really a fear base of reverence. Like that reverence you had of your dad when he came home from work. Like, oh, you know, like there's, there's, there's that kind of reverence of like, he's my dad and I'm his child. And there's love there, but there's a, a, a reverence, a holy reverence of God. And so we, we don't live in pachad. We don't live in terror of him. I'm a son, or you're a daughter, you're beloved, he's redeemed you, he loves you, you can't do anything to, 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 to move away from him. But there's also an element of reverence and holiness that needs to be there and be reminded in the Western church again. Like this is a God who spoke and created the heavens and the earth. This is a God who Moses says, I can't see you face to face. Please hide me in the cleft of the rock because you're holiness. 
This is a God where when the, the priests would go into the temple, they would tie a rope around their waist and put a bell on them. And they would have to ring the bell to make sure that they were still alive because they came in contact with the holiness of God. Now, I can come into the holiness of God because of the blood of Jesus. But there's still a holiness that should usher in a state of reverence inside of us. And I think that reverence, once again, can remind us of the sober reality. You are a holy God. And I want to lay everything down because you are so set apart and you are so holy and you're so awesome that in your holiness and in your awesomeness, you chose to give yourself up for me. And now grace abounds. And I understand the power of the blood so much more. And I will not trample it underfoot. I will not take it for granted. You get what I'm saying? But we forget that in the church, man. We forget that in the church. We forget it. And so here... Just to clarify once again, there needs to be a balance between the two characteristics of the Messiah. No balance, no reality. There are a lot of people that are not living in reality because they err on one side of the equation or the other. What I mean by that is this. What happens if you have that real hardcore, righteous judge, wrath God, and you're preaching and you're living a life where he is bigger than the suffering servant love, Lamb of God. What happens in your life when that occurs? Fear? No grace? Anyone grow up in a church like that? Oh, no. One. That's good. Maybe. Yeah. You did. Some of us know. Some of us know. What happens? What happens here is this. Just as it says, you lose sight of love. You start to become extremely judgmental towards yourself, towards other, others. All you do is talk about fire and brimstone and sin. And sin has you like, you give so much power to sin. It's unbelievable. Like you talk about sin and you talk about the devil so much. He's become so much stronger than he really is. He has been defeated. He has no control over me. He's God. He's done. It is finished. I have the blood of Jesus. Get out of here. You're, you're like an annoying gnat. Get away. But people give so much power to him. It's like, stop. Devil. Devil made me do it. Devil around every corner. Are you kidding me? He's not allowed to have access to this. You're not allowed. Get away. You're annoying. Leave me. The holiness of God inside of me. And the righteousness of God. I'm a son. Get, get, leave me alone. Go pastor someone else. Danger. If you live in this environment, preaching this type of environment, fear becomes your sole motivator to do things. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of hell's fire. There are people who come to faith based off of this. Go to hell's fire. Hell's fire. Oh, all right. I'm just going to say my prayer and do my thing so that I can escape that eternal damnation. Man, you are setting yourself up on the wrong foundation. You're setting yourself on a place where you are going to have one miserable spiritual life. It creates this striving mentality that where you now need to earn. I need to earn it, man. I need to earn his love. I need to earn his grace. I need to earn his redemption. And now you have become the God. You get what I'm saying? All right. 
Now, what happens when the other thing happens? What happens when the suffering servant is so overwhelming the understanding of also the righteous judge? Anyone grow up in a church like that? All right, all right. You can tell me later. What happens is you, you can create this seeker-friendly atmosphere, right? Where you're just constantly... I mean, it's one thing to be friendly, and there's one thing to just water down the power of the gospel to try to bring more people in. It's when, like, sermons and teachings just become like a self-help guide. We don't talk about, like, sin. We don't talk about surrender. We don't talk about laying down your life. Um, but I think the real danger, there's two real dangers here. One, one is uh, that the grace becomes weakened. Cheap grace. Do whatever you want. Just ask for forgiveness tomorrow. Dude, I don't want to be playing that game. That's not a repentant heart. I do not want to be playing that game. There is grace there when I, when I falter. Uh, yes, praise God. But playing the game of I'm just going to get away with it. you think he doesn't know your heart? Trying to get away with things, you know? Most people are not like that, but we all probably have had friends and things like that or people we know who start playing that game. I can just do this and not listen to the word of God and you know, everything's going to be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be going into the pearly white gates, but there's a seat of judgment. Another thing that happens here is the holiness of God is forgotten. We serve a holy God, set apart, pure. And he's called us to be a holy priesthood. He's called us not just to be priests, he's called us to be holy priests. Set apart, different. Surrendering our life. And so when this happens, particularly this one right here, I want to talk a little bit more about. I feel like it's one that's happened maybe a little bit more in the last 20 years. When the righteous judge is not on equilibrium to the suffering servant, an unusual result can occur in addition to all of this, which I think really needs to be discussed to have some proper biblical teaching. And that is, if we move into this, it's not a definite, but there is a strong potential that what it will create is a lack of concern for the lost. Like if you just, I mean it doesn't take long guys, like you just meditate on Daniel 9, meditate on Revelation, you think about what's going to happen, you're going to get a little stoke in your flame to go share the gospel. And I want to paint it in such horrible tones, but if you could dare see with eyes that are spiritual and see the status of people's souls when you're walking down the grocery store line and know what the end would be for them, you'd be weeping out of love and compassion for them to sh share with them, pray with them, like love on them. But if we just we forget about that, it's just like, well, God loves all. He does love all. But we forget about an eternal damnation. Just like some really serious stuff. And I couldn't believe this. Don't take my words for it. How about an atheist? I don't know if you guys ever remember the magician show Penn and Teller, or Penn and Tiller? Penn and Teller, whatever. Penn and Teller. Atheist Penn Gillette doesn't respect Christians who don't evangelize. 
This is an atheist. Because I don't respect you Christians if you do not evangelize. What? He says this, direct quote. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. You're, like, You're an atheist. What are you talking about? Right? I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, this is in his words, an atheist, and you think it's not really worth telling them because, you know, it's going to be a little socially awkward? He's like, really? Like, you think my soul is damned and you're not going to talk to me about it because you think it's going to be a little socially awkward? I have no respect for you, man. That's an atheist. Now, he goes on to say this in the interview. If I, Penn, the atheist, believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I would tackle you. And this, this being like eternal salvation, is a little bit more important than that, according to you. It's like an atheist just preached to us. Like he's pointing out the ridiculousness of not understanding the reality of life. He is coming back with fire of love for me, but fire of vengeance for those who do not turn on him. That is a reality to get my life right. Yes, I'm saved, but I want to be progressively sanctified into his image. So when I'm sitting at that seat, he's going to say, man, I'm so proud of you. And he's going to say that to all of us. But I want him to say it like, not out of striving, but out of a burden of love to him. And I want to be, I want to be mobilized in my, in my life to be like, there is a certain reality to the scriptures. If you do not repent, if you do not call upon the Lord, it's not a good ending. And I'm not going to go and like lead someone to the Lord like that. It's not for them to hear that. It's for me to hear that. I'm not going to go to someone like, you know, you don't accept Jesus, you're going to burn in hell. I'm not going to say that, like, just flat out like that. It's ridiculous. You catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, right? But it's for me. David, there is a reality to things. And the kingdom of God resides inside of you. Go out. But we need the holiness of God again in the church. We need to have a balance of things. We need to have a balance. So, what does it look like? Because that's going to be a lot better, right? Mary, you can come on down, man. What does it look like to have a healthy balance? Because that's what we need. Well, the righteous judge and the suffering servant need to be in balance. It needs to be some, some, some level of equilibrium of understanding. And so what I, what I kind of want to call it, because I feel like it really encapsulates what's really going on, is holy reverence in love. Like there is reverence in fear, but then there is reverence in love. And I believe the Lord is just asking me personally, and I, I think we as a corporate body, you could go to the Lord yourself and see what's going on. But I just feel the Lord is just putting on my heart, David, I want a holy reverence again in your life. Putting away those things, yes, out of love, but also out of a reverence of my holiness. And so a need for holy reverence and love, I think, is, is the key here. There's reverence of awesomeness of God. 
where I would be trembling, but I don't have to because there's love and there's grace. But there's still the element of understanding that revelation. Um, when we take a look at this, um, there are a couple things to, to, to understand through this balance. And, and some of it we just, we just need to reprogram to understand the reality of things. Judgment is not always a bad thing. Like we, we have this concept like, don't judge me. Well, the scriptures actually say like you, you are to judge things. You know? Like I'm going to judge my, my daughter's boyfriend. Like, honey, I don't think he is, is, is right, you know, upstanding man. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to judge my interactions with people. Like, I don't know if I should be spending too much time with this person. There's a healthy level of judgment. But people have kind of co-opted it and just ran with it and, and made us feel like, oh, you can't judge. I remember I was, I was confronting a brother in the Lord in regards to something and he looks at me he's like well didn't Jesus say take out the, the log out of your own eye before you see the splinter in mine I'm like yeah but the last verse of James says if any of you goes to a brother and corrects them in love I'm like bro I took that log out I got other logs but this log that you're dealing with I'm taking that one out and I'm coming to you as a brother and saying yo you need to X and he didn't want to handle it and he left and he left and he moved, and he divorced his wife, and he did all this kind of stuff. It's like, there you go. All right? So there's a healthy level of, of, of judgment. And, and why is that? Because we need an ideal to look to. I want to say this again. We need an ideal to look to. And what does this mean? This means this. Whatever the ideal is not, like if you don't meet the ideal, instead of a judgment, let's take a look at it at, as an evaluation. Sounds a little better than judgment. Jesus is the ideal. If I come short of Jesus, there is an evaluation. If there's no Jesus, if there's no ideal of judgment, then I don't know what to become. If we don't judge anything, and we do not judge sin, no one knows what to become. You get what I'm saying? I mean, that's, that's half the problem of the world. There's no, there's no rubric. There's no boundary. There's no border anymore. Do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good. Be this, whatever gender you feel like, whatever sexual orientation you feel like. No, there is an ideal. It's Jesus. And what he says, and there's a, a judgment, or rather an evaluation of the mark of what to be. And we know because of sin, we have missed the mark, right? Okay, I get it, but it's not a game over. Because he told me that I get to be transformed into his image by glory to glory. Till we see each other face to face. The disciples say that we don't even know what you shall be until we get to see him. Because we will be as he already is, First John. It's not like I just stop at this status. No. I, I keep growing into the image of the sun. Out of love. Not out of like I have to do it. If there was no judgment of things, I would just stop. And I would just be like, ah, I'm getting through the pearly white gates. I'm good. But there's an ideal. And his name is Jesus. 
And the scriptures say that you are going to do even bigger and greater things than he has done. I want to be molded into his image and into his likeness because you are the very sons of God. And the breath of God reigns inside of you. And you are made in the very image and likeness thereof. This is not small pickings, man. We're being molded into this. Into ideals. He loves me even though I'm not the ideal, but I get to be the ideal. Molded into an image where we forget the reality of things. That you and I will judge nations. You're being molded into an ideal judge like Jesus. Nations. So we need a reference point of what to become. What's the target? And the target can be love, and I'm all for the love, but sometimes there needs to be a little reverence. Dad's in the room. Time to behave. Another reason... Actually, you know what? For added effect, Romans 6. See, I don't think I'm making this stuff up. Romans 6. This is Paul speaking. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Like, hey man, we're saved. Can't we just keep sinning because there's just going to be more grace that's going to cover my sin? Paul's raising a question to the Romans. Certainly not. How shall we who died in sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. It's possible. If the target is the right thing. Another reason why we need the holy reverence of love is because it creates this reverence in love. If we understand the awesomeness and the power of God and the potential that could have been judgment but is no longer judgment, I'm no longer condemned, but I'm now moved into a place of conviction. I'm moved into a place of conviction. Let's just be real, man. If someone loves you, loves you, loves you, man, you could be a great person you just return with so much love or you're like, I know they love me so much so I'm going to get away with stuff. You know, your mom is going to unconditional love, unconditional love. Ah, I'm going to get away with stuff. Because she's always going to be there. Oh. So when we understand the awesomeness and the holiness of God, we have this notion, not condemnation, but a conviction of love when you bring both of them together. When we see not just love, but love and holiness, when we see both sides of the characteristics of the Messiah, then we are marked by the reality of his greatness and are compelled to be molded into his image. Compelled by love to be molded into his image. A third reason why we need this balance is that it creates a desire by you to get out of your own skin. To get out of your own 
mojo and your own temperament and your own personality and your own wants and your own desires. When I understand the holiness and the holy love of God, there is now a mark of what to become. I want to become the image of Jesus. I want to do things like he would do them. And whatever I'm going through, whether it's just myself or finances or relationships or family things, I could honestly say, what would Jesus do? And then do it. Because he's the mark. I think when we also understand the holy reverence of God with the love of God, there becomes a desire to truly bring forth the kingdom of God which reigns inside of us and bring it out to the world. And lastly, which I don't know if it's necessarily most important, but it's pretty dang important, is that it creates a compassion and not a judgment for the lost. When we soberly are reminded of the, of the wages of sin and the wages of death, it should kind of keep you up a little bit at night. Not because like I'm going there, because my buddies from work might be going there. And so closing up today, I just want to just compel, hopefully compel you with this. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved because of the love of God and the holy reverence in love. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Paul is like, whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they going to hear, guys? How are they going to hear the message of the gospel? How are they going to hear if they have not actually heard it? And how are they going to hear if, if no one spoke it to them? And if no one spoke it to them, it's because no one has been sent out. I want to be on that seat of evaluation. And I don't want him to be like, yo, man, like you could have brought a couple more people in with you if you would have just opened your mouth a little bit more kind of thing, you know? I don't know if that really happens, you know, free will, predestination, sovereignty of God, whatever. But use it as a lesson of like, I want to go to that seat of Christ. And I want him, I don't want to sit there and be like, yo, Dave, your life was a book. And you got to chapter 20. Do you know that I had three more chapters written for you? but you didn't choose it? Because you didn't understand the severity and the seriousness of the power of the gospel. Like, I want to get to the, the throne room of, of grace and of judgment for him to be like, yo, man, like, I destined that you were going to have 20 chapters, but it was going so well that I just added more on. And I just had to stop it before things got real funky and crazy. That's what I want, you know? And like I said, guys, I don't want this to be a condemning word. I want it to be a sobering word. I don't want it to be like fear because perfect love casts out all 
fear. But I want it to be a reality check that we serve a holy God who's coming back to defeat the enemies of God. People, we got to get ready. We got to get our life ready. And we got to go out and share the gospel, not in fire and brimstone, but in love. And so, Lord, I just pray right now. Why don't we just all stand? Father, I pray that right now that there is, the enemy would not come and take away what has been sown in right now. I pray against people like, that was a condemning word. I pray against that spirit that says, this is judgment. I don't need this, Lord. I pray that there is an appropriate balance. An appropriate balance. And Father, I pray if there are people in here who have erred on the side of judgment, 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 that you reveal unto them the beauty of your love and grace. But Father, the more sensitive one, the people in the church, the people of the church at large across America and the world, if there are people who have just lean so much on the suffering servant that they have forgotten to gaze into the eyes of he that matters. The one who is enthroned in heaven where the four living creatures are circling around him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Father, if there needs to be a remembrance again of holiness unto God, let it be done this day not in condemnation and not in fear, but as a sober reality of the beauty and the power of the depth of grace, the, gra the depth of the blood of Jesus, the depth of the blood of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. That it would become a reality to us and that it would compel us to just lay everything at your feet because I was destined for the abyss but the blood of the Lamb of God that was slain at the foundation of the world saved me. And now I get to respond by that love and say, I can only lay everything down. How could I not? How could I not when I stare into the gaze of holy love? Father, I pray for the depths and the wells of holy love to arise right now. Ahava Kodesh, holy love. Ahava Kodesh, holy love. Let it arise, O oh God, in our midst. A love of holiness, a love of grace, the power of redemption. A holiness that no eye and no one can go into the throne room of God, but now we can because of the blood of Jesus. And we can gaze upon your beauty, and we can gaze upon your holiness. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, to behold your beauty and to inquire of you in your temple. Because in holy love, you can't help, 
you simply can't help but be transformed. A consuming fire consumes all sin. An all-consuming fire that consumes all sin and the only thing left is the light of God. Amen? Have a wonderful week. Remember, we have refreshments in cafe downstairs and we'll do that for a little bit and then we're going to move into our all-church meeting to discuss some of the construction of the roof. But I kind of move things around so that we would not rush this moment. Because this is the place of impartation. As so I just ask, as, as you leave, you leave quietly. But those that want to remain and meditate on the holy reverence, the holy reverent love of God, that you could do that. I'm not going to lay hands on you because you know what? I need to go before him yet again. Just bask in his presence. Just bask in his presence. And meditate and contemplate the full reality of the scriptures. Amen. Have a wonderful week.